Welcome to the Greatest Movie of All Time podcast. Tonight we bring you number 40, All the President's Men. I'm Tom Duncan. And I'm Dana Duncan. But, before we get to the show, a few housekeeping notes. One, if you haven't been listening to the Dynasty Download, you're missing out. We're covering everything you need for your weekly fantasy football lineups, especially if you play Dynasty League football like we do. There are two episodes each week, so there's more than enough content to get you and your lineup ready each week. Check us out wherever you get your podcasts. With that, Dad, are you ready to discuss all the President's Men? I am. So let's just cover the basic blocking and tackling. Let's do the plot summary here just for the general audience. Uh, I don't know how familiar everybody is like we are with this movie. Two green reporters and rivals working for the Washington Post, Bob Woodward, played by Robert Redford, and Carl Bernstein, played by Dustin Hoffman, research the botched 1972 burglary of the Democratic Party headquarters at the Watergate apartment complex. With the help of a mysterious source, codenamed Deep Throat, played by Hal Holbrook, the two reporters make a connection between the burglars and a White House staffer. Despite dire warnings about their safety, the duo follows the money all the way to the top. This uh, movie was nominated for Best Picture in 1976, unfortunately losing out to uh, Rocky, which we'll get to here in a second. It was nominated for Best Director for Alan J. Pakula, edited Supporting Actress for Jane Alexander. It won for Best Supporting Actor for Jason Robards. Adapted Screenplay, Sound, and Art Direction. In 2007, it was added to the AFI's 100 Years, 100 Movies, 10th Anniversary Edition list at number 77. It was the number or was numbered 34 on AFI's America's Most Inspiring Movies list, 77 on the Top 100 Thrilling Movies. The characters of Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein shared the rank of number 27 on AFI's 100 Years, 100 Heroes and Villains list. In 2015, the Hollywood Reporter polled hundreds of Academy members, asking them to revote on past controversial decisions. Academy members indicated that, given a second chance, they would award the 1977 Oscar for Best Picture to all the president's men instead of Rocky. So, Dad, what is your connection to this movie? Well, first of all, I lived through Watergate, so this was always a fascinating story. It was, um, let's see, when the Watergate investigation really started was 73, and then in the summer of 74, um, so I would have been nine, eight, nine years old. Um, and I watched the hearings, <clears throat> because I was a complete nerd when it came to politics and history and all that. So I and then when the book came out, I actually read the book while it was in junior high school, and um, uh, did not see the movie until I think it was on HBO uh, in 1980, 81, somewhere in there. Um, but I had read the book. This would be the part of the podcast where you might insert something like nerd alert. Uh, my experience and my relationship to this movie is, is I think I've watched this movie uh, once every calendar year since I was about 12. And it was specifically because you watch this movie a lot and it's incredibly rewatchable. So this was my only relationship to what Watergate was for a long time. Now, there's been a lot more material recently. There's some really great podcasts, uh, a few different uh, books, and um, there have been some documentaries, some other things that have really been done to dig through stuff, especially in the last uh, four or five years. 
But the, for a long time, this pretty much defined the relationship most people had, uh, the general public, to what happened in Watergate, other than uh, Nixon resigning and some of that. So let's jump to what is this movie about? For me, it's that no one should be too powerful to quote-unquote get away with criminal activity and the sheer importance of relentless journalism. Yes, it, there are several moments or several scenes, and, I, and I'm trying to remember that it's a panning shot, but not panning, or I mean not a, a zoom shot in, but zooming out shot. They do that on two separate occasions. One, when they're going through all of the slips of the stuff, material taken out from by the White House and the Library of Congress, and they do the zoom out into the top of the Library of Congress to show how point or how small they are in comparison to what they're trying to accomplish. And then the other was when they had the list of creep committee to reelect the president's uh, staff, and they're interviewing them, and then they said, well, we're going to have to start over. And then they do the zoom out to show all of Washington, D.C. And again, showing that these two guys are minimal, minuscule in the greater picture of things, but yet they're trying to effectuate a change. They're trying to do something important. I don't want to get too much into the historical context and politics, but I think there is almost nothing more American than a movie like this. And this really set the template for journalism movies, especially after this. Almost every journalism movie is compared to this because most of the formatting, how its style is done, its pacing, uh, how you even cover, or like the, the shots of a newsroom or any of those things all kind of come from this movie. But yet, why I say it's incredibly American, the idea that a powerful political entity could be undone by two guys that are so green is such an extraordinary and revolutionary idea, even in 1976, okay, we're at the bicentennial at that point, that I, I wonder if we really recognize. At the same time, I will say that as far as the legacy of Watergate, I've maintained for a few years that I think the uh, episode of that, while being good for journalism, was extremely, had such a negative effect on the history of American politics. Because I think that's really the seeds of, although it did come after the Pentagon Papers, but uh, it was really the true seeds of undermining our trust in our democracy at the same time. And I think we've been on kind of a downward spiral since that we're constantly looking for conspiracies and uh, all these ways that everybody's lying and trying to cheat us. And you can put a through line from that to uh, Iran-Contra to um, the Clinton years to uh, the 2000 election. And, and now you get into this weird uh, median uh, environment that we're currently in and the generally um, disparate and polarized nature of the country at large. 
And I don't want to get into the, the political side of this. I just, you can't not address some of the historical and political context when it comes to this movie. You have to understand that um, we just came out of the 60s, which was a uh, turbulent time, the worst year, probably, or one of the worst years in American history, 1968. Uh, Nixon was about as polarizing a figure as um, there was. Nixon's election, in large part, he usurped uh, the popularity of George Wallace by using the Southern strategy of trying to get Southern Democrats to cross over and vote for him. And it was a huge issue. Like you said, the Pentagon Papers, but it was the Vietnam War in in and of itself. The Pentagon Papers just revealed to the public the the nature and extent of the lies that were being perpetrated um, by prop. Basically, it was propaganda by our federal government about the Vietnam War. This was just the last straw. And then, of course. After Watergate, you have all the rest of this stuff that comes out. We have the church hearings. Frank Church, the uh, senator from Indiana, did these, investigating how the CIA was involved in overthrowing uh, Mossadegh in Iran, how, you know, different things that were going on. It tainted a whole generation or several generations to distrust their government. And then what it also did is there was a large group of people who just decided that, hey, uh, we don't care. We're going to blindly follow our government because the alternative of this isn't any better. It's radicalism. It's uh, liberalism. It's all the the cultural stuff we don't want. And I think the, the seeds of a lot of the discontent and the negativity that exists today and the, the cultural and political split that exists now are rooted in this and go back to the days of Nixon. All right. I, I'm not going to, I think we would be down a long rabbit hole if we tried to go too much further. So let's just move into best performance. I thought for a while and I won't use my nominee for best performer because I, I'm pretty sure you're going to have the best performer uh, similar to mine. So what I'm going to do instead is make an argument for the guy that I was trying to uh, find a way to nominate him as the best performer and couldn't figure out a way to do so over two other guys. So I assume you're going to give uh, Robert Redford the best performer, and thus I'm going to talk about uh, Dustin Hoffman. So, All right, that's fine. Part of the reason that this movie is going to probably, not probably, is going to have a high legacy uh, moment for me, uh, or a grade, I guess, is that we have so many taglines. I mean, Bob Woodward, this like season i mean we're not even out of fall he just released a book that had some meaning on the current presidential election and everybody still associates him so closely with this whole thing his career is still taking place and he still has the ability to undermine politicians what some 40 50 years later 
I mean, it's extraordinary how long and important his career has essentially been. And yet we get a lot of uh, these guys more in um, general interviews and the rest of it. And part of the reason I bring that up is you can tell how much of a crab apple that Carl Bernstein is. He is such a odd figure who seems to only have softened in his old age, but only slightly. He's had a very difficult existence for a long time. If I remember right, he's had some issues with substance abuse. I don't want to make – if I'm wrong on that, I I apologize because I – You're not. All right, but still. And – He's had, uh, I mean, they make even a comment on that during the course of this movie. Is there a place you don't smoke? I mean, the the guy is such a odd character, and yet Dustin Hoffman somehow not only plays him well, because if you see him in interviews, it's really not that far off, and also seemingly makes him somewhat likable, and that's a difficult accomplishment to do. So I just want to at least recognize him, even though I nominated Redford because I really couldn't not or nominate Robert Redford. But I I just thought he needed at least some recognition because of his place in this movie. Well, you know, um, if you were not aware, uh, Carl Bernstein was married to um, uh, Nora Ephron. Nora Ephron. And in fact... um, one of the things he did a uh, uh, there was a movie made about um, the two of them and their marriage breaking up with um, Meryl Streep and Jack Nicholson and um, Ironweed I believe was the name of the film and it talked about the just incredible problems that existed both uh, mentally and substance you know, with substance and alcohol and uh, some people have a difficult time with celebrity. And I think to some extent, Carl Bernstein had a lot more difficult time with celebrity than Bob Woodward did. So you did mention it uh, when we did our Sleepless in Seattle episode number 30 uh, back in August. Uh, Go check that one out if you haven't already. But you mentioned that they were uh, married at the time and thought that was a a nice anecdote. But uh, one of the pieces of my own research was there's a different version of this script that she and... Carl Bernstein actually wrote and submitted to Redford. And if you remember the scene where he fakes out the secretary in order to get into the Florida lawyer's office, or I, I can't remember Prosecutor. exactly his Dargis. Sure. Sure. But yep. played by uh, um, Ned Beatty. Ned Beatty. Thank you. Uh, that whole scene is ripped from the Bernstein Efron uh, script. It did not appear in the actual script. It was not in the book. It never actually took place. But it was a way of uh, making Bernstein this um, kind of comical, but uh, also um, somewhat, I guess the the term is lady man type character, I guess extra confident or uh, con man type character, I I guess. I I, I don't have a great way of describing it, but... And so, I, I don't know. I, I, there's there's difficulty with that, and I just wanted to recognize him. So, 
that being said, let's. Uh, who did you nominate for your best performer? Redford. He just had a presence throughout the film. He was the glue. There were so many great performances. And there, again, we t- I've mentioned this so many times that I would love to do a, uh, a character actors uh, episode at some point in time as a specialty. A special episode. There's so many great character actors in here. Um, from Martin Balsam to Jack Warden. Um, you know, I mean, they're just great, and they they do so many different things well in this film. And and um, even Hal Holbrook, who has at times been a star, has also been more of a character actor or second banana, and he played the part brilliantly. Uh, I don't know, in in actually having studied some film and listened to some interviews and such that Mark felt gave. Uh, I don't know how they could have found a better actor to play Deep Throat. But I think ultimately it's Redford that's the foundation for all of these other performances that made them work. I'll take it a step further. The reason I I didn't think his performance was uh, above anybody else's necessarily. I thought he worked well in a great ensemble. The reason he got my best performance and why I couldn't – uh, really nominate anybody else is his work in getting the film made it, this was his passion project this was the origination really of him being a filmmaker and trying to put a lot of these things together i mean he did go on to win best director a, a few years after this uh, for a much different movie we'll cover at a different time but this is him figuring out that he wanted to transcend just being on screen and being more as part of this. I don't know how much he had film-wise or filmmaking-wise before this movie, but the sheer number of things. He bought the rights to the book. He went through the entire script-writing process. He was involved in uh, most of the major casting decisions, everything else. And for what the movie eventually has become... I have to give it to him just for how the the sheer volume of things that he contributed towards this movie. Well, you have to add in the fact he did so much too, not just acting wise, but the production aspect. He's the one who hired uh, William Goldman, who was the um, uh, screenwriter. Goldman had been the screenwriter for Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid which Newman and Redford had been in, he more or less uh, kind of recruited Ellen uh, uh, Pacula, and that was based in part on the fact that Pacula had been a, a, had done a very good job in a courtroom or a suspense-type film. Do you know what film that was? I came across it today, and the, the name of it escapes me. To Kill a Mockingbird. Okay, that's not the one that uh, that I came across, but okay. But he also did, after this, uh, he did uh, Clute, which was a Donald Sutherland uh, film with Jane Fonda. He did, um, he wrote the uh, screenplay for Sophie's Choice, and he also directed Presumed Innocent, which was Harrison Ford, and uh, The Pelican Brief. There was a different journalism movie that he made a couple of years before this that I happened to come across, and I cannot remember the name of it, but all right. 
So, uh, best secondary performer, I'm going to let you go first. Yeah, I'm going to go different just so they nominate more people. I'm going to go with Jack Warden because every time there was a point in the film where things weren't going the way it should or the way it could, Jack Warden seemed to always have the lines that kind of drew it back together. Um, you know, who's Chuck or who's Chuck Colson? Um, I'm glad you asked me that because, you know, um, hey, don't you remember when you were hungry? These guys are hungry. Every time it just seemed like he had some mechanism, some vehicle by which he kind of kept the film together or kept the tie between the story and Woodward and Bernstein. I did enjoy him for how much he really comes through in this film. I do, to a certain extent, wish they would have given Martin Balsam a little bit more to do. But for what it's worth, my secondary performer is Jason Robards. Just, again, you can't really deny how well he did encapsulating. And I think it's pretty much the associated take everyone has on Ben Bradley at this point. However... Jack Warden's version or his character, and I can't remember the name of his character at the moment, uh, really is the first half of the movie what Bradley and Jason Robards are to the second half of the movie. It's kind of driving the story forward. It's the boss. It's kind of the, the glue, the mechanism, the oil, if you will. And I know that those all things um, don't necessarily make sense in context unless you know exactly what I'm talking about, but they stitch together the narrative so that it gives it a, a more of a context and background as to what these guys were going up against. And uh, I thought he did an excellent job. He's incredibly entertaining every time he's on in this movie. And similarly, I think Robards accomplishes a similar feat in the second half of the movie where he becomes kind of the journalism gatekeeper for the one of the legacies of this movie is how much rigorous journalism was accomplished especially in context of modern journalism so they keep mentioning it multiple times during the course of this the amount of unnamed sources or whatever else and that's become a huge deal how readily willing and able journalism is anymore to use anonymous sources and and the rest of it in order to publish news currently and robards is there to basically put the backstop on and more or less be the journalism gatekeeper as to whether stuff is going to go out because he still feels a sense of responsibility that they have to get things right before they're going to go out that they can't just published theories they have to actually back it up with hard facts and i i think that's a necessary character in any one of these types of movies where you have to have somebody that keeps you just enough in line that gives you a leash to pursue the the avenue you need to but also brings you back down to earth and says you can't go too far well, just remember that when this film was made, Jason Robarts had basically just gotten through his own rehab. He had been treated for uh, severe alcoholism. Um, he had, a, had been married to 
or he had been married to Gina Rollins, who was in a previous movie, The Notebook. And the reason that marriage fell apart was because he was uh, not just a drunk, but a very mean drunk. Um, so he quit drinking, and this was really his comeback. And I, I, I'm going to admit, I bifurcated this because even though I would have probably said him, I'm giving him the most charismatic. Um, and I'll give that right now because of that. I just think he really came across um, as a guy that could have been a huge star if his personal demons had not derailed a large portion of his career because he was really good. You know, and you think about it. Ben Bradley, in addition to being the editor of the Washington Post and one of Jack Kennedy's best friends, was played in two movies by Jason Robarts and Tom Hanks. This guy's got a, some, or Ben Bradley had somewhat of a charmed life because there's not too many people that can say that they uh, were friends with the president, had such an important job, and got played by two very big named uh, actors uh, in movies. So Robarts brought the character to life, but I think to some extent he had a character that he could bring to life. So you gave your most charismatic. I'm going to go completely into left field, and I have felt this way since I first watched the movie. Uh, it really didn't take me that long, but every time I come to that particular scene, I, I just find him oddly charismatic. Robert Walden, the guy who plays Donald Segretti. For whatever reason, <laughs> I get to that scene in the movie... And he seems inviting, he seems unassuming, uh, he seems like he could be a just generally innocent guy who's caught in a bad situation where he wanted to do something uh, well, and yet somehow has ended up that he's um, really doing something poorly. And I know the movie probably presents him in a much better light than the real Donald Segretti actually probably deserved, but for whatever reason... He just has this uh, pop-off-the-screen ability to me in that, like, maybe scene, two scenes, scene-and-a-half type of situation. He's basically in the movie for, like, eight minutes. And I always can tell uh, certain points in the movie by that scene. So, for me, I, that just has always stood out. I nominate him as my most charismatic. All right, let's move to best scene. Uh, the first one I'm going to do is Bernstein rewrites Woodward. So the the scene where he's basically pulling Woodward's finished product out of the basket and he's rewriting it and they're, they're going back and forth. And it's really the pacing or the, the uh, setting where these two are starting to figure out how to work together. And I think it's so um, elegant of a devising that they put it this way for him to basically rewrite it and then figure out how to do it where uh, Woodward might be the better reporter, might be the better investigator, but Bernstein might end up being the better wordsmith or at least have a little bit more know-how on journalism. And whenever you have one of these team-up type of situations, you have to have some type of devising that gives them a reason to kind of come together. In this particular movie, they're both in diff different situations. Bernstein is assigned to something completely else. He just happens to be interested in this particular story, 
And so he keeps finding ways to be around what's going on, whereas Woodward's kind of on the crime beat, and he's the bigger newbie, if you will. And it's his story, but Bernstein figures out a way of um, making himself important enough to Woodward that now they have to work on it together. And for the the elegance, not only of the writing, that makes it not feel forced, but feels a natural part of the evolution of this team, I think that's a wonderful use of, of that particular scene. What's your next one? Uh, the Library of Congress scene. I, I touched on it, the zoom out, kind of the, the, the camera angle coming down, seeing just the... You know, the, they're so insignificant from this mo- or, or monumental task that they're trying to undertake. Um, it just, to me, uh, really conveys what they were trying to accomplish. Just two guys who didn't have anything really special or anything going for them other than just tenacity. First off, I've heard that, that uh, specific shot referenced in a a number of different places so it's one of the most famous shots from this movie um if not just like journalism movies in general but and this isn't oh i guess it is one of my nominees so let's just go into it but them figuring out how to investigate the twenty five thousand dollar check from kenneth h dahlberg and uh we're gonna go find whatever reference we can in the clips and that whole scene I kept thinking to myself so much, God, these guys must have really loved when Google came around. I mean, you you think of how you search any bit of disparate information anymore. Any or any old fool would have literally just been typing in Kenneth Dahlberg into Google and they would have found that in five minutes. Whereas these guys are basically flipping through huge novels in order to find one reference of this guy and then they finally found him. And then the conversation with Dahlberg and, uh, you know, uh, all of the background surrounding it, that he's a Minnesota fundraiser and he turned over checks to certain people and how that all comes together. But it just that's the one place where this movie is really aged is how (laughs) how the technology would be so much different and how you cover things at this point. I have such a privileged existence to how i had to do school and research because i never had to go through any of that and i I just i kind of laughed to myself a little bit at how much they had to probably go through so do you have another scene to nominate yes um the first meeting with deep throat all right i had that one down too but why did you have it i i think it just kind of sets the tone of the the remainder or the last portion of the film as far as the, the first meeting with Deep Throat, it gives us one of the signature lines of the movie, Follow the Money, that kind of helps set the outline of how they're going to progress the investigation. It establishes Deep Throat as a um, source it, that does pay off in the back half of the movie. And then finally, how many times has this trope not been reused in journalism films, um, undercover investigations, uh, any of these where uh, a parking garage, a dimly lit space, and a shadowy figure appears that's barely visible on screen that we're asking questions of. The, the meeting in vans, the dimly lit crap, all of the stuff that's such a reused trope comes from that scene 
and setting the whole course of things as to like how you structure that and it because it worked so well everybody's reused it time and again it is timeless it's become kind of the standard by which that issue or that type of mechanism is presented uh all right so i'm gonna go with uh even though we both had that one down i have uh two more well actually three more on my list again just to bring it up i know it's the um uh, scene I mentioned in, for my most charismatic nominee, but uh, the Donald Segretti confessing to rat fucking. I just love that scene for whatever reason, The because I think that's when the case kind of expands. Up until that moment where they start to figure out, well, this is a much larger story than we even realized at the time. And... You don't necessarily get the context uh, unless you get all of the historical background sometimes um, beyond this movie because this movie intentionally only covers like the first seven months of the investigation. Whereas, I mean, this went on for years. But I think this is where you finally get that last kick of the movie that says this is a whole lot bigger than we ever thought it might be. And for as charismatic and kind of playful as the whole thing is and seemingly innocent, it's kind of where the rest of the movie funnels out and it becomes much bigger than what the movie is or even that original um, part of the story itself because uh, the story of Watergate really starts about that point. Well, I have a scene which is basically the last scene, which is at outside Ben Bradley's home. And uh, the the uh, line that I like, and it's going to probably tip off the future here, but when uh, Bradley says, you know the results of the latest Gallup poll? Half of the country never even heard of the word Watergate. Nobody gives a shit. You guys are probably tired, right? Well, you should be. Go home, get a nice hot bath, rest up 15 minutes. And get your asses back in gear. You're under a lot of pressure, you know, and you put us there. Nothing riding on this except the uh, First Amendment to the Constitution, freedom of the press, and maybe the future of the country. Not that any of that matters, but if you guys fuck up again, I'm going to get mad. Good night. Not only did I, or has that line stuck out to me forever in watching this movie, because it's basically the end of the movie, but... Bob Woodward's been on the press tour the last few weeks promoting his new book um, where he played all the tapes and and did the other things. It's his second Trump book. But he uh, was on uh, a different podcast show, and he actually, uh, not paraphrased, he directly quoted this speech. So this one must have really happened and happened in such a way that it's like seared into his memory exactly what Bradley said, because some 50 years later, he is directly quoting it on an interview podcast about what he thought of Ben Bradley and uh, the importance of journalism and what he's always thought his job should be. And so I think to a certain extent, he was defined by this exact moment and this speech. Well, and I think that's exactly true. And, and, You know, I have the advantage of being almost 57 years on this planet, whereas you have been on the planet 30. Um, 
there are moments in time where there are certain things that are said, words that are said to me, movies or uh, plays or whatever. I'm talking about real conversations, things that are done and said in real time that just press upon you and become indelible, like um, like a, a tattoo on your body that you know will always be there. It's words, phrases, and situations that you experience that really have an impact on you. And obviously, if Woodward's still quoting this line so many years later, you know, he, he is basically indicating... I now understand what it is I'm in the middle of and what my responsibilities are going forward. Uh, the or One of the other ones that I have is the final typewriter sequence. So the movie really kind of begins in, in a weird, weird way. So when I turned this on the other night and it kind of just sits there with that blank page for a good... I want to say like 15 seconds before something happens. I wondered if the movie was like delayed or my streaming capability was off for whatever reason. And, but when that, that first type key hits and you kind of realize the context of this movie, you're recognizing, Oh, I'm in a newsroom and the rest of that. And for what it begins as, because you get that typewriter sequence to open the movie and then you get it to end the movie. Uh, you realize all of the things surrounding journalism. I think they're just great bookend pieces to this movie that um, end up causing it. Uh, is it my best scene? No, but it's remarkable for how they structured the movie that it never really lets you forget uh, where you're at and what is being done in the course of this movie. You're being dropped into a newsroom, and this is pretty ordinary. The one complaint I have about that scene is the typing is going so fast and you can barely see it over the the top of the ribbon that you can barely follow. I've had to literally pause and try and read that. I, I don't know how many times. Uh, did you have any other ones? Otherwise, I have a final one. Uh, go ahead. And uh, this is my nominee as the the full best scene. I, I waited to do this one as the last thing. But I think part of the legacy of this movie is, particularly on journalism, is that look-over-your-shoulder mentality. For most of this movie, they're kind of just two guys bumbling about and stumbling across stuff in the dark. But when they're starting to get too close... And even though the impending threat isn't there, there's one particular scene where you get this eerie sense of what they're starting to be or uh, get into. And it's where he meets Deep Throat and the car pulls away and all of a sudden Deep Throat's no longer there. And Woodward starts leaving the parking garage and he's looking over every shoulder and then he starts jogging down the street and there's this tracking shot of him and all of a sudden he just whirls around and there's nobody there. And for as much as was done and accomplished in that moment of the film, setting that they really started to um experience the paranoia that should have been associated with this that they're on to powerful people who have 
mechanisms beyond their belief that can come after them. I think that scene really sets apart this feeling for the film in no uh, or in which no other scene or aspect of the movie really does. I nominated that as my best scene. What do you have as yours? I I gave you my best scene. I gave you my best line. Um, it's Robart's summation line, which is really to, to explain to them what the impact of this story is and what what their roles were and how they have uh, what they have accomplished to that point and what they have facing in front of them. All right. Did you have a favorite scene? I love the line because, uh, you know, having been in the, the characters or having actually lived through this, uh, the line where they uh, end up naming Haldeman, but it, it kind of escaped and deep throat goes. Uh, and I, let's see if I can find the actual. You've done worse than let Haldeman slip away. You've got people feeling sorry for him. I didn't think that was possible. In a conspiracy like this, you build from the outer edges and go step by step. But if you shoot too high and miss, everybody feels more secure. You've put the investigation back months. Just the idea, because Bob Haldeman, no one in in Washington liked Bob Haldeman. And just to talk about how you know, you've screwed up so much, you've made Bob Haldeman look sympathetic. It just, I just kind of chuckled about that because, yeah, that's about right. I, I've kind of probably tipped my hand a little bit, but my favorite scene is the Segretti and the rat fucking. I don't know why. It's just been always one of those scenes that I, I literally, it, it's incredibly rewatchable to me, and I, it's always stuck out. I, I don't know why. Uh, most indelible moment. I don't have it as any one particular moment or scene necessarily but pretty much for every time woodward's meeting deep throat in the parking garage i think that's the thing that sticks out to me every time i think it only happens like three or four times during the course of the movie but it it just it's the one thing that most people talked about up until the point that mark felt finally revealed himself and so I, I think it was part of the legacy of not only the Watergate investigation, but of this movie in general. So that's my most indelible moment. I I uh, I, I think this the scene with uh, Deep Throat in the parking garage where he finally just says, "I've had enough of this shit. Tell me what you know. Take out your notebook. I'm tired of these chicken shit games." And and really, if you did not understand or know, Mark Felt was the deputy director of the FBI. Basically, L. Patrick Gray was the director. He bypassed Mark Felt, who was the number three behind Hoover and Clyde Tollefson. And uh, Nixon appointed Gray, who was uh, like had been in Navy intelligence or something, so that there was a civilian, non-FBI, in charge of the FBI. And... Um, but uh, Felt had all the reports, every field office, everybody doing the reports. He was the f- the filter. Everything came across that the FBI found, and then he passed it to Gray. So he had knowledge of every aspect of what the FBI was finding. 
interesting extra tidbit for uh, all you audience fans out there. Uh, This seems like a really good time to pause for uh, this week's sponsor. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's jump right back into the show with Best Lines. Uh, what is your first nominee, Pop? Um, well, obviously it's the, the Ben Bradley line towards the end of the film that I read in depth. I said I was going to nominate that one, and I would, and I do. All right. Uh, the first one that I'll go with then is uh, it's kind of the second half of the uh, line. I think I mentioned it to you the other night that um, I really liked this as a form of writing, particularly because of it's a good use of device. The Partly because knowing who Bob Woodward is and how prepared he is and all of the other things that go with him that he wouldn't know who Charles Colson was is a little astounding, and it's the part that probably sticks out the most in this movie, unless you realize that it's a plot device, because most of the audience isn't going to know who Charles Colson is. So if you have to explain it to somebody, it naturally would come up that one of the reporters would ask, even though they likely would know who this person was. Well, who is Charles Colson? The most powerful man in the United States is President Nixon. You've heard of him. Charles Colson is special counsel to the president. There's a cartoon on his wall. The caption reads, when you've got him by the balls, their hearts and minds will follow. I've actually somewhat met Charles Colson or did meet Charles Colson when he was alive. Charles Colson um, wrote a book called Born Again after this. He had uh, found Christianity and had... Uh, written this book, uh, did a speaking tour. Um, my boyhood uh, pastor arranged to have him come to Beloit. Uh, being the fascinated person I was with the whole thing, um, I made sure I, my parents took me. I got to hear him speak. I kind of got to be near him. I didn't get actually introduced because I think at the time I probably was like 12 or 13, maybe 14 years old. So I was a peon to him, but um, he started prison fellowship um, and had been doing that for a number of years. And then uh, about uh, 2001, 2002, he indicated that he was turning over day-to-day control to somebody else. And then he would just do uh, a radio spots on Christian radio stations for a while. And then he subsequently died because, you know, I think by that point in time he was Having problems with his age or with his health, and uh, saw the end coming, and wanted to keep the legacy of the organization good. And they do very good work. Where mom and I have given money to prison fellowship through the years because they provide funds that allow prisoners to buy Christmas gifts for their children to maintain some semblance of a relationship between an inmate and his family. And so I think it's a good organization, and I've supported it through the years. And, uh, you know, but anyway, just that's just an aside. Uh, what's your next nominee? I love this line. Um, they're sitting in the newsroom, and um, it's uh, uh, Ron Ziegler, you know, talking about, you know, what the Post has to do with all this Watergate stuff. And, and Bradley yells, all non-denial denials. 
They doubt our ancestry, but they don't say the story is inaccurate. I love that line because it is really the epitome. I, I use that thought process whenever I'm listening to anybody doing news or any comments. It's when politicians or people in political power um, make denials that really do not deny the story, but just deny the motive behind the story or for whatever reason, because they know if they deny the story and it proves true, they lose credibility, or at least used to. The next one I had was uh, Bernstein and Woodward. Boy, that woman was paranoid. At one point, I, I suddenly wondered how high this thing goes, and her paranoia finally got to me. And I thought what we had was so hot that at any minute, CBS or NBC were going to come in through the windows and take the story away. You're both paranoid. She's afraid of John Mitchell, and you're afraid of Walter Cronkite. Although I, I think that quote might be the one that uh, probably ages the worst, because Walter Cronkite's been off the air for 20-some years, and I wonder how many people that, uh, even of my generation, even know who he is. Uh, closer to 30 years he's been off the air. Okay. But still, I only knew of him partly through history, but also because he narrated all those dinosaur videos I used to love as a kid. Yes. All That's right. the way it was. Yes. Okay. Uh, next nominee for you. I, I, I've got several, but it's just a matter of picking which one that I want to give. Well, of course, the line, the last line I already gave from Ben Bradley, I'll use that one. That's going to be one of my favorites. I also like the line from the um, from the courtroom that I mentioned earlier where, you know, what's your name, Markham? Okay, Mr. Markham, what, are you in here in connection with the Watergate burglary? I'm not here. So I, I just think that's kind of, that kind of summarizes so much of what uh, this was about. Oh, uh, Howard Simmons, which was um, Martin Balsam's um, character. Can we use their names? Bernstein, no. God damn it, when is somebody going to go on the record in this story? You guys are about to write a story that says the former attorney general, the highest-ranking law enforcement officer in this country, is a crook. Just be sure you're right. Yeah, that line has always stuck out to me in the middle of this movie. And I think it's where... The, the, I guess, trajectory of Bradley and his importance in the course of this story becomes much more evident uh, when he's put forward as now being the central gatekeeper as to whether these things are being published, what the responsibility is, and, and how this is presented. The Another line or set of lines I really like that was almost comical um, was uh, uh, Bernstein and Dardis. So Ned Beatty and Dustin Hoffman. All these checks are from Mexico? See. How, how come? Did the money originate there? Well, I doubt it started off as pesos. So I just thought that's kind of funny. Uh, I have an odd one, but I, I think this is a, an interesting one, at least for... Um, what I kind of nominated earlier, and again, something that's always kind of stuck out to me, but the more I've watched this movie, this particular line, because it happens right after what I said was my favorite scene, they start to realize how much they've stumbled onto. 
Woodward. Segretti crisscrossed the country at least a dozen times and always stayed in cities where there were Democratic primaries. Bernstein. So if the break-in was just one incident in a campaign of sabotage that began a whole year before Watergate, then for the first time the break-in makes sense. This isn't so crazy. The whole thing didn't start with the bugging of the headquarters. Segretti was doing this for a year before the bugging. And a year before Nixon wasn't slaughtering Muskie, he was running behind Muskie before Muskie self-destructed. If he self-destructed. Uh, Woodward and Bernstein. The story is dry. We've got all our, our all we've got are pieces. We just can't figure out what the puzzle is supposed to look like. John Mitchell resigns as the head of Creep, and he says he wants to spend more time with his family. I mean, it sounds like bullshit. We just don't believe that. No, <laughs> but it's touching. Forget the myths the media's create about the White House. The truth is, these are not very bright guys, and things got out of hand. That's the first uh, meeting with Deep Throat, right? Uh, yes. Okay. In the early parts of the paper, when um, he actually credits Deep Throat, it wasn't deep background. He, re- he quotes uh, someone that I will call my friend, which is hilarious because um, he came up with my friend because in his notebook he kept putting MF for Mark Feltz. And so he just thought, MF, my friend. So I'll just refer to him as my friend. And then Feltz kind of said, uh, no, I don't even want that. I have one more nominee, and I think it's probably the one that sticks out the most. It was not part of the book. It was not something that was ever said. So this is entirely a byproduct of the movie. But I think it's been reused so many times, not only in movies, but in media and everything else, uh, that I think it needs definite inclusion. Follow the money. Yep. That's probably enough said on that one. Did you have any other nominees? Uh, no, not really. I mean, there are a few good ones, but that that covers the, the largest portion of them. Okay. Um, so which for you is the best line? Oh, well, I, I, I again go to the to the um, to the last line, the Robarts line um, about freedom of the press, and you know, I, it's I love summation lines that have some bite to them. You know, sometimes summation lines. You know, I, I've often th- I, I equate summation lines in films a lot of times to to uh, pop music. You know, I like when they have an ending to a song as opposed to it just fades out. And to me, a film that has a good summation line has a real point at the end, whereas some that just kind of, and it just fades out, it's like it kind of leaves you unsatisfied. This line gives you satisfaction. I'm not even sure, to a certain extent, it's a complete summation line. I think it's just a good speech about journalism in general. So uh, I have no objection to that being the best line. I just think that for um, the significance of what it is and part of, that it's part of the legacy of this movie, I think Follow the Money needs to kind of be the co-best line. I, I do agree that that is the most memorable line. 
All right, so uh, let's move on. You ready for our Stanley rubric? Yes, I am. All right, you can have the first crack at Legacy. This film, I and I, again, we, we debated this over the last few weeks. I'm going to give this film, as far as Legacy, a 10. Um, because it has set a standard of journalism and of journalists as um, celebrities for 50 years. And, you know, there are certain – it has become a benchmark. Are you Woodward and Bernstein or are you some schluck who's trying to uh, uh, take the short road but get the fame out of it anyway? Are you going to put the work in that's necessary to do what it takes to become a great journalist and to get the story, or are you not? And uh, it's it it is how journalists tend to, and the public in general tends to rate journalism today. The simple fact is is that we still call everything gate. In this country, the movie so much permeates, you can't separate this film and Woodward and Bernstein from the Watergate scandal itself anymore. They've so intertwined that it can. You can put Bob Woodward on television or on radio any place in the country, and I would say nine out of ten people have some idea of who Bob Woodward is. I would tend to agree, and I had a feeling you were going to go nine and a half, ten. For me, this is the the one sticking point in category that I really took my time to figure out exactly why I graded it out at the number I did. And to me, I couldn't go any higher than a nine, and I don't think it's necessarily arguable. Now, part of the reason that I wanted to establish a 10 last week when we did Jaws is that that movie set a lot of things for the film industry. It set a lot of uh, precedents for filmmaking, uh, for how the filmmaking process went about, the marketing, so many other pieces of this. The one reason I can't give it above a 9, I almost even knocked it below that is that this movie for a certain part of this is more of a complement to the story of Watergate than it is the central storyline of Watergate. This is the final framing of what the story was, but Watergate had already happened prior to this. Nixon had already resigned. A lot of this had played out in public, and the movie frames the final understanding of the journalism that surrounded it. This has a significant impact on journalism movies, on the genre, how other stories are put together. And so I can't give it really too far below a nine, uh, but I can't give it a straight 10 either because a lot of the legacy of this exists without the movie and exists outside of filmmaking even though this has a significant impact on filmmaking itself. So, to me, this is a nine. The only thing that I would argue, and I very seldom argue when we rate on this, the only thing I would say is is 
this movie is the summation of everything that took place up to then. There would not have been a Watergate but for Woodward and Bernstein because it would have gotten buried. Um, it was so close to being buried. And the film brings out clearly the level of their involvement and what their role was in this. But And to me, that's actually adding to my argument, that it's the framing of how these guys are depicted, not in what their legacy is. So I think this is more important to the legacy of Woodward and Bernstein than it is to the legacy of Watergate itself. Okay, so let's put this in terms you understand a little better. The early Green Bay Packers and the early Chicago Bears. Can you separate George Hallis and Curly Lambeau from the Bears and the Packers? If there was a movie made about them, yes. Uh, except that the only frame of reference you have to either of them would potentially be the movie. And that's where I'm saying this movie was what really you almost this is almost like a docudrama where it showed or it it disclose the level of involvement or the intertwining of these. But it's still a dramatization. And while it gives you an image and a framing of how these guys have been perceived culturally for a long time, the entire story would have existed without the film. It just gave them a certain level of notoriety beyond that. And I'm looking at this strictly for the impact and legacy of the film itself, not on Watergate. I think there are so many pieces. I understand where there's a connectivity and tissue between the two, but I'm. this is where I really tried to separate it out. I understand why you did what you did. I'm just saying for me, it's a nine because it has to be knocked down that uh, a lot of these parts and the bigger con- construct of the movie – has a lot of things that it brings from the outside that have nothing to do with either the movie or film history or the impact on on the the industry itself. All right, fine. I understand your point. I am the one who's been reticent to uh, use tens very often. I think it's a good thing you used it. I think it's a healthy thing that you did it. I just disagree. All right, impact significance. What do you got? Um, I had 9.5 because it's not a film. And the only reason I, well, actually, I'm going to actually change my answer after listening to your arguments. I'm going to go with a nine. And, um, and the reasoning was that I didn't give it higher is simply because it is not a film that the, the generation, your generation, the uh, the aughts and the millennials know a lot about. I don't remember. When did the Frost-Nixon interviews come out? The actual, the, the actual interviews The themselves? original ones, not the movie. Oh, boy. 79, 80, somewhere in there. Okay, I wanted to say they were after this movie. Other than maybe those which I do think have a significant bearing on the impact of, or not impact, but on the um, perception of what Watergate was. 
this was the final frame on Watergate. And for a similar understanding, in the short term, it was a highly successful movie. Uh, This movie actually made quite a bit of uh, money for um, the subject material that it was and being kind of a pretty close to the the time frame docudrama as you mentioned and for filmmaking and uh, other journalism movies because there were actually quite a few of them that came out in that late 70s early 80s period that um, all kind of took their cues and were compared against this I think this kind of set that new wave of journalism type of genre films uh, for probably at least a good 20 years, although impact significance is supposed to be within that five-year period. And I think that this was the final frame. Again, if you're separating out the the movie from the historical event, I think it had a, a significance for how people perceived after the fact uh, the Watergate scandal and people who were learning about it after the fact, like myself, you know, as a 12 year old kid watching this movie much later, but I don't know because in the moment people knew more about Watergate. I think this has a higher legacy than it did in the short term, because even um, when they were there, the fact that it lost best picture um, and then people went back after the fact and thought it should have won and some of those, I think this was a little bit stunted in the moment that it was in, whereas I think we look much more fondly at that that moment in time and this movie once we kind of revisit it. So I actually gave it an 8, so it'll take us to an 8.5, but I, I think you got to kind of knock it down just slightly because the country had just gone through all of this. Well, yes. But you have to understand, too, I grew up in this period. This is when I became an adult. And I remember having this conversation in college in 1983, still debating the Watergate era, Woodward and Bernstein, the whole issues involved and how impactful it was. And it really did divide the country even further when this film came out because there were those who hated Nixon who just reveled. They just couldn't wait to get there. And there were others who were just absolutely disgusted that this film was out. And it only cemented their belief that Nixon was just mistreated. So what did you have down for novelty? I thought back, and usually anything that was involved with newsrooms or journalism tended to be more almost comedic as opposed to serious journalism. Right. Um, so I had for a nine for novelty. I mean, there were other stories about um, newspapers and newsmen and such, but they weren't to the serious nature of this. Um, so that's one of the re- only reason I gr- downgraded it. Other than, and I know this is going to sound bad because, like, it, it sounds like I'm taking the key element of novelty away. But other than setting the tone for journalism movies and basically establishing the genre or reestablishing the genre, again, to your point from a second ago, uh, the only journalism movies I can really remember, although there were a couple that kind of had some of this uh, through line beforehand, but Roman Holiday, which we covered, which was kind of a journalism movie, uh, Citizen Kane 
to a certain extent. I'm trying to think. Uh, it happened one night. But they're all kind of these like cute romantic comedies that don't give the fierce tenacity journalism that we kind of expect from this genre that we get now. You know, Spotlight it was constantly compared to this movie when it won Best Picture because it really is kind of the exact same movie but with a different subject and just a little bit different context and setting. So I don't want to take that part of away from it, but I gave it an 8 because there isn't ne- necessarily anything else remarkable, I guess. Like... It, to give something an eight is is novel in itself, but I, I take a little bit. I, I don't think there was any major thing with filmmaking necessarily that was uh, depicted in this. Uh, there wasn't anything that that you add on to. I, I I had a real struggle trying to come up with something that I thought was novel, other than how they established the genre. And so because of that, I thought eight was pretty high, but not, like, too low either, if that makes sense. Okay, I understand where you're coming from. So what was your number again? I had a nine. Okay, so then that's another eight and a half. All right, so let's move on to classicness. And this is maybe where I make up for some of this. I had a real hard time. I don't know what a ten is yet. For classicness. But I almost gave this a 10. Because I really don't think there's any part of this. Other than maybe the technology thing that we mentioned earlier. That's more funny. Because like it, it's not that it ages poorly. Because you understand some of the context. But it, it's a bit from a different era. That's like the one piece of this that ages poorly. Every other part of this. From because uh, you could literally rip this movie and had this scandal happened five years ago and the movie was being done now. I uh, other than the technology, it would be basically the same. The feeling would be the same. the The structure would be very similar. All of this would fit in, and it, it doesn't really age. And to a certain extent, because they set the tone and the pacing and all of the other tropes we get out of journalism movies it's ahead of its time so i had to i gave it a 9.5 but i i was very close to giving this a 10 i just didn't for whatever reason there was an intangible separation where i couldn't quite give it a 10 because i'm not sure what a 10 is yet and until we set that barometer i don't think i want to go there quite yet well, I've thought about the classicness aspect, and I can think of one film that's on our list potentially towards the end, if not the end of this season, um, and that is the classicness. Because there's so much of that film that has permeated through culture that's been revisited and such. Um, when when it become when portions of a film become paraphrased in pop culture whether it's in cartoons being Looney Tunes or is lampooned by Family Guy or is part of a skit on Saturday Night Live, that's classicness. Where it becomes bigger than the film itself, to me, that's classicness. But the, there are certain aspects of this film that are, but it's not a 10. But you, you have to add the additional layer to this. 
So this is going to be part of the the next category with rewatchability that I can rewatch this film almost on a loop and the feeling of the movie never really changes. Mm-hmm. I think that has to be an additive to this. I, I think this is about as close to classic as you can get for a movie without it being quite a 10. All right. So what did you have? I went back and forth between 9 and 9.5. And what did you land on? Reluctantly, I went with a 9 simply because of the fact that it's not as classic as it was because, unfortunately, journalism is not like this anymore. It's yeah, okay. And so, you know, that it, it, I'm, I'm sorry to say, uh, journalism has become more of a gotcha than it is uh, the altruistic aspect of doing the story for the value of the story and what the public needs to know. So that's why I ended up with a nine. Yeah, and that that's a significant point. I, I suppose if we did this again in maybe another five years, that that would significantly change. I wonder if this kind of makes that part of uh, the need for a revisit at some point in time. Obviously, I think we need a little bit more separation out of the current political environment in order to maybe do so. But <laughs> well, we're we're recording this before a major political event. And to some extent, I wonder in five years if we will actually have a network with a guy by the name of Howard Beale um, doing the news, <laughs> uh, depending on how things go. Uh, I'm pretty sure we've had that for a while, to be, to be quite fair. Um, you and yeah. I were briefly talking about something that may be similar this evening, but uh, whatever. Anyway, rewatchability. I, I think this this isn't going to be a 10 for me. It's not even quite a 9.5, but I've already specified. I could watch this movie on a loop. I mean, the, there's really no point in the story that really seems to drag. Even the point uh, parts where it gets a little bit boring because it's, it's a two-and-a-half-hour movie almost. Even those parts are quickly undone by, oh, it's the next big part of this and the next big part of this. And frankly... I think this movie could go on for another hour and it really probably wouldn't get that stale. And I've, I, I think I've confessed part of this already. I've seen this probably 20 times. I've been around for 30 years and I've probably seen this 20 times in the last, you know, 18, 20 years since you showed it to me. This seems to be like the classic film that we seem to always watch, which is surprising that, uh, Sarah hadn't seen this movie until this year because we That'd watched be it. So my often. daughter, your sister. Yes, I know. I can't understand or believe that she hadn't seen it. But, but uh, anyway, she, I gave it a nine. So, but you, um, to me, this was always one of your rewatchables. So, what did you have? I actually had lower than you. I went with eight point five, and the, the only reason is is. I have to be at a the right frame of mind. If I'm having a really shitty day, like pretty much any day over the last couple of weeks in the middle of this uh, extreme pandemic with 5,000 new cases a day in Wisconsin type of deal, um, every day seems to be a little bit of a shitty day. 
I don't necessarily want to watch something this heavy. So to that extent, that's the only reason I gave it the downgrade. Because otherwise, I just, you know, I can sit and this thing could come up with the last 45 minutes. And if I've got, uh, you know, i got 45 minutes before I want to go to bed, then I'll watch this film. But i got to be in the right frame of mind. There are times when this film is going to come on and I'm going to go, oh, I love this film. I just can't. So. That's fair. I, I get it, but all right. So uh, add in the audience score of nine point two. So that's a nine point five for legacy, eight point five for impact significance, eight point five for novelty, nine point two five for classicness, eight point seven five for rewatchability, and nine point two for audience score for a total of fifty three point seven. When we were putting, or excuse me, when I was doing the show notes ahead of time, I started to wonder when I got so many high numbers. If this might happen, we have a new number one. Really? Really. Wow. Okay. But you okay, have to there, there have been four there have been four movies so far to finish uh at uh fifty three or above, and there have been only eight movies so far to finish at fifty two or higher. Okay, so we are this is number one, number two being High Noon. Number three? Fractionally. Back to the Future. And number four? The Best Years of Our Lives. You know, but you have to understand, too, we, we, there are, there, we're two guys who are political animals and are political junkies who love talking politics, watching politics, observing politics. And I, I think to some extent you are, although I think I am a little bit more of a presidential historian um, than you are. Um, and so, yeah, this is, you know, this film speaks to us. This is this is in our wheelhouse. So it doesn't surprise me. It, it, it doesn't necessarily surprise me, although from that context alone... I think this nominates at some point a future revisit with somebody to kind of um, bring us back down a little bit where uh, we get a bit more objective as to what this film is. It'd be interesting to have somebody who's more of just a cinemaphile than somebody who is a political junkie. Yeah. Uh, Well, or somebody that's not necessarily the average voter, but has a little less of the historical and journalistic background and just maybe enjoys the movie, period. So it's just something to consider that uh, we've been talking around and we've been kicking it around most of the season about having revisits at some point or another, especially some of the early films in our uh, library because um, they were kind of early on. But I I think that that is um, one to consider at some point. Uh, I am going to do something. I know we've been doing remaining questions. This might be one of the lone movies where we have had Woodward and Bernstein and to a certain extent Bradley and so many books and other things as to the investigation and all of the other bits and parts, and this has been picked apart. If I had a remaining question, I'm sure I could Google it and find it somewhere. Yes. Just just as an aside, for those of you who have an interest in this, um, um, Woodward and Bernstein's uh, book, The Final Days, 
leading up to the Nixon resignation is shocking. Just to watch the uh, the absolute degradation, the um, the decompensation of a man who had spent his whole life looking for love and admiration and never being able to quite get it, and and how he dealt with this adversity, uh, and then following that up by um, him. Uh, within, I believe, six or eight months, writing a book that became a bestseller called In the Arena, which um, was his blueprint for resurrecting his career and reputation. So uh, Final Days and In the Arena are both books that are worth reading if you are interested in this uh, historical period. Again, I, I can't stress how much material is available and widely circulated. Um, this is, again, kind of come around in some level of vogue and popularity um, with a lot of uh, recent materials republished and whatnot. I, I think this is still a fascinating historical um, era of politics, particularly American politics, but uh, you can definitely find any of that on your own if you so wish. I wish we could talk longer, but I'm expecting a friend for dinner. Next week, we will be discussing our first Coen Brothers movie, Fargo, uh, currently available on Netflix. So stick around on this feed for that one. If hey, like- RG. How you doing there? Yeah. Your impression is awful. Thank you. If you would like to email the show, greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. Again, that's greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com. The Greatest Movie of All Time is a production of Ronnie Duncan Studios. Our show is mixed, edited, and written by Thomas Duncan. Our music is thanks to Purple Planet Music. Our technical provider and distributor is Anchor FM. Good week and good viewing. Good viewing.